You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Facebook and Instagram officially banned in Russia. A Russian prosecutor calling the meta platforms extremist organizations. The war on disinformation about a war. Plus, discontent at Disney, a planned walkout Tuesday over what some call Florida's don't say gay bill is causing some to question the future of Disney CEO Bob Chapek. And what Serena Williams takes from the court to investing. The tennis star joins us to talk about her first venture fund and talks about everything from Tom Brady to her own thoughts about retirement and what the Serena slam of business might be. Russia is ramping up its ban on information, a court banning both Facebook and Instagram. The meta platforms now officially blocked across the country. This is the first time Russia's sweeping extremism law has been used against a foreign tech company. Joining me now, Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, as well as David Kirkpatrick, founder and editor-in-chief of Techonomy. Kurt, I want to start with you here. Facebook and Instagram were already banned in Russia. How is this different? Yeah, as you pointed out, they were blocked. Um, I believe Instagram was just last week, and Facebook has been a couple weeks now. And and what this does is, uh, my understanding is, it makes it actually um, an issue. It, it's a crime if you are working for one of these companies. If you were supporting one of these companies, you'd be considered uh, supporting, you know, extremist behavior or an extremist corporation. And so, I think it's clear if you're an employee, that would be a problem. Facebook says that they don't have employees in Russia right now. Um, but I think that it raises some questions around what happens if. If you're an advertiser on one of these platforms, what happens if you're a an investor who owns stock in one of these platforms? Is that considered a financial uh, support of, of a meta um, in this case? And I think that's somewhat confusing still, but ultimately, you know, it just makes these um, the ban much more official than just a simple block. A lot of interesting questions there, David. Curious for your take on this. It seems to be a rather rare example of Facebook coming off looking like the good guy. It's true. 
Uh, I think this is the first time I've been on your show in a long time where fundamentally I have to say Facebook is the good guy. Facebook was providing genuine information in Russia. Yes, it was banned, but this new legal ruling is turning the screws even tighter, although we have to be aware in Russia, there really is no legal systems of the type that we know. The courts are simply a rubber stamp for whatever the government decides. So yes, it's true that uh, advertisers or even users of Facebook could be in jeopardy, but given the nature of the way Russia works, if the country, if the government wanted to come down on those people, it could do so for whatever reason it chose. Uh, but Facebook, look, the best thing that could happen to them right now would be another Arab Spring, which would basically show the world that they actually can be used for good things because they're in the doghouse for all kinds of reasons otherwise. Kurt, what are the chances this could lead to criminal charges against Facebook and Instagram employees? I think that's the idea. I, I believe that if you are, you know, an employee who's working at the company, um, you could then be accused of, you know, aiding this extremist, considered extremist activity, right? Um, now, again, I, I talked to someone at Facebook earlier this morning. I was told that they don't have employees in the country right now, but it does raise some questions around uh, perhaps Russian nationals who work for uh, Meta or Facebook um, in other countries, right? If they're seen to be working for Meta, maybe they don't live in Russia now, can they can they return to Russia at some point? Maybe they have family there. What happens there? So it's definitely a complicated issue um, that is, is creating, uh, you know, so, some questions at Meta today. So far, WhatsApp, which is another Meta platform, doesn't appear to be blocked. And it doesn't appear that, that Twitter and YouTube have fallen under this, this law either. David, what do you make of that? Well, I would probably say it's just a matter of time probably in all three cases. Uh, certainly WhatsApp has the virtue of being invisible to the authorities because it's entirely encrypted. So they can't really see what's happening inside it. Um, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if it were later uh, decided that WhatsApp constituted a threat. All they have to do is see evidence that it's causing problems for them. Like I said before, the government of Russia can act by fiat on anything they want any time. And in terms of, of YouTube in particular, there's been a lot of speculation today that YouTube might be very shortly to experience something very similar to what Facebook and Instagram have seen. Twitter, it, it, you know, obviously, Twitter would be a very logical candidate for shutdown as well. Kurt, what do you make of the fact that Russia hasn't appeared to take official action on these other platforms yet? I would agree with David. I, I feel like this is just probably a matter of time, but I think the fact that uh, Meta has been so uh, kind of aggressive in policing and cutting off uh, state-backed media from Russia, you remember, Emily, uh, last week they, they had this kind of change in policy where if you're in Ukraine, you can actually post things kind of wishing violence upon invading Russian forces. I think that alone, that policy, that kind of loophole where they said, hey, normally this would be against the rules, but if you're in Ukraine, you can do this. Um, I think that really uh, angered, uh, you know, authorities in Russia, and, and they pointed to that as being a, a real issue that they seem to be taking a firmer stance on Meta than they are on these other companies. David, obviously, the bigger question here is what does Russia's internet start to look like over the long term? Does is this the beginning of a digital iron curtain that will remain down for years? Will there be a totally separate Russian internet as we have seen? 
in China? Well, actually, the answer to that is unequivocally yes. Um, there is a digital iron curtain that has been slowly dropping anyway. I think what could result would be even worse than the kind of system that, that China has, because at least China is a digitally savvy country at the national level. Um, you know, Russia actually had been researching in recent years the possibility of changing the way that URLs actually work so that you wouldn't necessarily be able to type in the same thing you could type in here and have it go to the same place. That would really be the ultimate example of a different sort of internet, because even in China, the URLs all work the same way. But that is where Russia is headed. You can't completely shut down information and still have an internet as we know it. And they are shutting down all information flow to their people. Kerr, what are the business implications of this? Obviously, China is such a massive market. Russia is a much smaller market, but certainly still an important one. Yeah, I believe the CFO of uh, Meta, Dave Weiner, said last week at a conference that the total business in Russia between uh, you know, advertisers in the country, but then also advertisers out of the country trying to reach people within Russia was something about 1.5% of Facebook's total advertising revenue. Now, that's a lot of money. Uh, but it's not a massive amount of money. And, and I wrote in our newsletter last week that I don't know if Meta has the financial incentives to try and, you know, bend over backwards to get back into Russia, right? Uh, whereas, uh, you know, they might be willing to make concessions in other parts of the world. I just don't think their, biz their business is big enough there for them to sacrifice a lot of the stuff that they've been willing to do up till now. And so that's one of the reasons I, I agree, again, agree with David. I'm not sure if, if uh, this might be the beginning of a totally different version of the Internet for Russia. Russian uh, citizens moving forward. Right. Certainly a fascinating and evolving situation. Kurt Wagner for Bloomberg Techonomy's David Kirkpatrick. Thank you both. Tuesday, Disney employees plan to put their discontent on full display, planning to walk out in protest of Florida's Don't Say Gay bill, or so it's called, which Governor Ron DeSantis hasn't signed yet, but is expected to. This bill essentially bans schools from discussing gender issues with children. Disney CEO Bob Chapek initially refused to release an official statement on the bill until last week. Many cast members have been doing mini walkouts every day during their breaks. This will be a much bigger walkout Tuesday, however. Disney hosting a town hall today to try to quell some of this anger internally. For more on what it all means for the future of Disney CEO Bob Chapek, I'm joined by Lightshed Partners, Rich Greenfield. Rich, Disney's now holding this meeting today to try to cut some of the tension here. What do you make uh, of, of the, the fact that Disney employees have been so vocal about their, their unhappiness with how Disney CEO Bob Chapek has handled this? You know, look, we've seen a lot of voicing of, of feelings among employees over the course of the last couple of years. I mean, if you think about sort of the furloughing of employees and sort of the layoffs that occurred around the pandemic, I mean, this has been a very difficult couple of year period um, for uh, all consumers or, or all employees around the world, but certainly for Disney employees, this has been especially challenging. Uh, look, I think the reality is executives and management teams are going to make mistakes. I think the real um, hallmark 
uh, of long-term success is whether they recognize those mistakes and pivot quickly. And I think that's what you're seeing here by Disney is pretty rapid change. You know, this is not letting this drag on and sort of addressing the issue very quickly. I can't speak to why the original decision was made and what the logic was, but I think it is comforting that the speed of, of changing their minds was swift because I think that's what really matters. And again, Disney's at this really critical crossroads as Iger has left at the end of last year and now Chapik is in full control. I think we're all waiting to see who is Bob Chapik? What is his long-term Disney plan? And I guess to your question, Emily, will we get to see it? Because he's got a year left on his contract. Will we get to see Chapik really put in, in, in motion his long-term plan? Well, and I guess what I wonder what your answer to that question is. Are these staffers upset enough that this should 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 should, should give Bob Chapek some serious concerns about his job? Look, I think the he, he must have heard loud and clear how broad-based the fear was or concern was around this issue for them to reverse course so publicly so quickly. Um, not to mention the internal meetings and everything that you've seen. But look, Bob Chapik's long-term future is going to be most likely judged on the big strategic decisions he makes. What is their plan for Disney Plus? Is it being merged with Hulu? Are they creating one service and really going after Netflix uh, and trying to become a, a massive streaming company? Are they really going to focus on just Disney content? Might they sell ESPN and ABC? Like, why are they in the sports business? You know, sports is not a business that you can scale. You can't own the content. You know, the NFL owns the NFL, not Disney. Uh, you know, if you think about the UFC, which has been the biggest piece of 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 ESPN Plus, that's owned by Endeavor, EDR, public company. So th th you sort of get back to like, why is Disney in some of these businesses and what is this long-term strategy? There is no doubt Bob Iger set in motion a tremendous you know, ramp in Disney Plus subscribers. But as you look at where we are now and look at over the course of the next five to 10 years, the question is, is what does Disney want to be when it grows up in streaming? Does it want to be something for everyone like Netflix? Or does it really want to stick to its core franchises and verticals, which is probably a smaller, but also very successful and very profitable business if you scaled that? What do you make of the Iger side of this story? You know, the fact that Iger doesn't disagree with, doesn't agree with this, this position that Chapek initially took, that they reportedly no longer talk, Iger, and JPEG, I mean, the speculation going so far, you know, some saying Iger could replace Bob JPEG, which I believe Bob Iger has, has said that's ridiculous. Um, but, you know, we're in a rapidly evolving situation here. Look, this has been a relatively challenging, you know, couple of years, I think, for any executive going through the pandemic. A lot of layoffs, a lot of change, closing down operations. I mean, look, even Sha I think Shanghai Disney World just closed down again just today, I believe. So this is sort of a never-ending saga that impacts employees and it creates a lot of emotion. We're obviously living in a social media world where people can express their views um, about how they feel very visibly. I, look, in terms of Iger versus Chapik, you know, I, I don't really know what to say other than, you know, Bob Iger's gone. Chapik is now in charge, and the question's going to be, I don't think what Bob Iger feels or doesn't feel anymore matters. I think what really matters is, what does the board think, and what do shareholders think? I, you know, At the end of the day, the stock obviously is down a lot. Investors are concerned that they don't really understand 
what the strategy is. You know, are they going after Netflix or is this more of a Disney focused service? I mean, we've been, Disney's effectively been dragging its feet on Hulu. Comcast owns a third of it. What is the Hulu plan? Is it all about being rolled in and creating one mega service or are they going to continue to run three streaming services? Remember, there's Disney Plus, there's Hulu, and there's ESPN Plus. It seems from a consumer standpoint, having multiple logins, multiple different interfaces seems suboptimal. Obviously, part of that is Comcast's fault and sort of battling over price. But if you think about what Iger did when he came in, he made a very important strategic decision that shaped the entire future of his run as CEO. He bought Pixar. And that was a tremendous acquisition that completely changed how investors thought about the Walt Disney Company and the content and the IP and the rest is obviously history. The question for Chapik is, you know, do you keep ESPN? Do you keep ABC? Do you want to be in this general entertainment business? Do you merge Hulu in with Disney Plus? Do you keep ESPN Plus? Like all of these are these big strategic decisions. I think we're going to get a lot of answers about all of this over the course of the next nine months. But I think the stock is somewhat struggling. I think we're struggling with the stock, not knowing right. exactly what Chapik's going to do. So we'll be seeing just how big this walkout from employees is Tuesday. But do you think? This blowback could spread to consumers. Obviously, there's been some discontent with the Genie reservation system, the sky-high pricing of the Starwood, uh, Star Wars hotel. Could consumers revolt? Uh, look, you know, uh, my partner, Brandon Ross at Lightshed, covers the live entertainment business. You know, I think you had Michael Rapino's been talking pretty openly with Live Nation about just the incredible demand for concert tickets, even with rising, you know, gas prices. I mean, you've just seen incredible demand for experiences. Disney World is literally packed to the gills. Margins are moving to levels we haven't seen in years, uh, if ever, eventually. And so, like, look, there's always risk. I think if Disney probably hadn't reversed course and sort of addressed the concerns of, of employees very quickly, sure, I think anything was possible. I, I think the, the real issue is going to be right now, they're raising pricing and taking advantage of this environment. I mean, inflation's obviously rising, and I think they're literally looking at demand. They can't keep the parks, they, they can't handle the demand. And I think that's partly why they're taking advantage and raising price, but investors, they're not worried, Emily, about the parks. Investors have yeah. one concern. They're only worried about Disney Plus and what is the streaming long-term strategy. And that's what we're going to okay. be hoping to hear from Chapik when he holds an analyst meeting later this month. Right. And, of course, we'll see how long of a chance he gets to prove himself. Rich Greenfield yeah. of Lightshed Partners, thank you, as always, for weighing in. Now to AMC flipping the script, the entertainment giant announcing it's buying 22% of a gold and silver mining company, an unorthodox move for the world's largest movie theater chain and a past darling of mean stock investors. Bloomberg Quick Takes Alex Webb explains. Why is cinema chain investing in gold? Do you remember AMC? It was a big meme stock last year. The market capitalization jumped from about $4 billion to more than $30 billion in the space of just a few weeks. Well, the CEO, Adam Aaron, has just announced plans to invest about $30 million in a gold mine. And it says something quite interesting about how he perceives his own company's prospects. You see, the role of a CEO is often to do with capital allocation. In other words, how you spend your investors' money 
money in a way that will generate the best possible returns for them. And usually you can do one of three things. You can either invest in the existing business by opening new locations, investing in innovations, adding new headcount. You can think about acquiring a company that uh, will then play well with your existing companies and the two firms work better together than they would on their own. Or thirdly, you can just return that money to investors. Now, he's not opting to do any of those things. Uh, returning money to investors would be a strange choice because he only raised from them last year. And besides, AMC trades at a considerable premium to its competitors, so it's not necessarily buying shares at a reasonable price. When it comes to investing in adjacent deals or the existing business, he's sort of telling investors that I can't find a way of generating as good a return as I could by investing in this gold mine. In other words, the implicit suggestion is the cinema business is not very good and you should put your money elsewhere. He's just cutting out the middleman and doing it himself. Our Alex Webb there. Coming up from the tennis court to VC, we're going to hear from Serena Williams about how she plans to find the next generation of startup champions. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average 19 days per employee per year, that's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to the markets and our Ed Ludlow is taking a look at Chinese tech companies, which have had another rough day in U.S. trading. Ed, take it away. Yeah, I think if there was a pocket of pain on Monday, it was in the U.S. listed shares of Chinese technology companies. In other words, ADRs. And for everything going on in the world, right, the outlook for the Federal Reserve and rates, what's happening in Ukraine and the conflict with Russia and global commodity prices, you have to remember, you have to have a bit of sympathy for those investors out there that that like Chinese tech companies because they've also got to track what's going on with policymakers in China. These stocks have been fluctuating all over the place. Another down day Monday, down 4%, really underperforming broader indices here in the United States, broader moves in technology. So where we've been left, Mr. Director, bring up the next table, please, is a situation where Wall Street and sell-side analysts aren't getting it right on their forecast for the price of these US-listed Chinese companies. We're talking about big names here, right? Alibaba, JD.com, Billy Billy, Tencent Music. And what this board shows is the percentage difference from the current price, where the share prices are actually right now, versus the highest price target and the lowest price target on the street. So let's just take Alibaba as one example. Versus the price of where we are now on Monday, the highest street target is 163% above where those shares closed. The lowest, 40% below where we are now. And 
it was all about a change of tone from policymakers. Em, you and I have been talking for a year about Chinese regulators clamping down on technology and internet companies in that country. What happened last Wednesday? Wednesday, bring up the next board. That the Golden Dragon Index, that kind of basket of US-listed Chinese stocks, massively underperforming, and then whoosh. 33% gain in a single day. Why? Because policymakers came out and said that they were going to be more supportive of these companies and make a real downward push in the stock market. So have a bit of sympathy, Em. Have some sympathy for these Wall Street names that are really struggling to get it right. I'll try to muster some sympathy, Ed. Thank you. Tennis legend Serena Williams has raised $111 million in her inaugural venture capital fund. The goal? To find the next generation of champions. From underrepresented backgrounds. Williams has been investing in early stage startups for nine years, but this is the first time she has raised outside capital. I caught up with Williams and her partner, Alison Rappaport-Stillman, to talk about where they think a new class of startup stars can be found. Take a listen. We don't check just one box. We really are looking forward to well, well, health and wellness, femtech, as well as fintech. Obviously, we're, the crypto space and the Web3 space and NFTs are something that is on everyone's mind. And um, I don't think you can really have a VC firm and not have some really big part of that into into uh, big part of your fund into that part of the web three space so um we're kind of like looking in those particular areas now you've been the greatest of all time in tennis for so long but in venture capital you've kind of been in stealth mode or under the radar yeah. and a lot of yeah. a lot of celebrities and athletes don't necessarily get taken seriously here unless they're investing directly yes. in their craft is there something motivating or energizing about trying to prove yourself at something new Yes, and honestly, that's one of the reasons I have been investing so long and I have been in stealth mode for so long because I feel like, you know, whether it's an entertainer or it's an athlete, when we try to do something different, it's seen as uh, more of an opportunity as instead of a passion. This is actually a passion of mine. I wake up every morning thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to open my computer and look at decks or just talk to the company or just see how what we're going to do today. Um, and it's something that is I'm super passionate about. And I just genuinely have so much fun with it. Um, but yeah, that's also another reason why I was operating in stealth. I really wanted to build my portfolio. I wanted to build my track record. So when people had questions, I would say, you know, we can just go to our track record or go to our data room and kind of see what we've done in the past. And it gives you a glimpse of when we do have um, bigger fund and being able to write those big checks, what we'll actually do in the future. Now, Allison, there's a lot of money flowing into the venture capital ecosystem, a lot of competitors out there, and VCs often claim they have a unique network. Your network with Serena's would seem to be unparalleled. How does that come to life on behalf of your startups? Are there any examples you can share? Yeah, one of the great things we're able to do is leverage the network that Serena's built for the 20 plus years in her career um, for behind the scenes connections. Obviously, Serena has lots of followers and being on Instagram or something like that is great. But when we can connect someone to the head, of, you know, the head of ESG at Nike, or we can kind of connect someone to someone at Amazon or Procter & Gamble, those are people that she's been partnered with for a really long time, but are either business development opportunities, potential acquirers, or a lot of them are investing themselves in startups in the space so we've been doing a lot of work with that you said yourself serena you don't like to lose what do you take from the court to investing 
So that's a good question. You know, it's really about having a winning attitude and really just about um, understanding that you have to put a lot of time into this, you know, and you have to put a lot of effort into learning. And for me, I'm the kind of person that I like to really do my homework and really do my due diligence and really just kind of figure out exactly how, so I can be the best at it because, you know, I know what that takes. I know what it takes to be the best at something in the world. So I'm bringing that to the table and not many people have that, but at the same time, understand that the hard work and the dedication, and then also that champion's mentality of like, I like winning. So if you do, what does it take to win? And it's really just figuring that out and applying it into this, this part of our, of my life. Allison, speaking of the track record, Serena Ventures has backed 13 unicorns, six exits to date. What is the advice you're giving to founders right now about the macroeconomic environment, given what we're seeing with inflation and interest rates and geopolitical uncertainty? Yeah, there's obviously a lot of risk right now in the world when you think about what that means. But we've also seen in times of kind of great economic distress, some of the best companies coming out of that. People are looking at new opportunities, whether they wanted to or not. Also, with interest rates going up, we have, you know, debt's going to start getting more expensive. So there's more opportunity for different forms of financing. And when we're doing it early stage, it's still the same course. It's make sure you have enough capital to get you to your next stage. How can we help you? What are the things that you need to build? to get to that next level and what are the tools that you need. So for us, it's, it's, it's kind of business as usual because there's a lot of opportunity happening right now, a lot of great companies that we are seeing and funding, but also thinking about kind of making sure you have a little bit saved away for a rainy day because no one knows what's around the corner. Serena, the New York Times ran a story about your fund and mistakenly printed a photo of your sister instead of you. You tweeted about this saying, no matter how far we come, we get reminded that it's not enough. How did you process that mistake? Mm -hmm. um, honestly, I, I've been through a lot in my career and in my life, and I don't let one thing tick me off too much. For me, I process, process it as an opportunity to use it to let other people know that you're not the only one being overlooked and let people know this is why I'm raising Serena Ventures. You know, this is why I want to make an impact because we can, we need people like me and people like Allison and like our team at Serena Ventures to be writing the big checks, to change that narrative so we don't have to be overlooked and just, just thought on and just you know just say okay let me just write let me write let me just post this as, as fast as I can I'm not even going to think about it because it doesn't really matter to me and so it's really about changing that narrative and it's um mm -hmm. I think that's so important because if you have a platform to talk about it and to discuss it then it needs to be discussed and um yeah I think it's important for other women and other people of color to see that you're not the only one struggling. I mean, I've been number one for, I don't know, eons. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I've won more grand slams than I could even find. And um, the fact that that can still happen is just an, 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 um, and the truth that this is why we have Serena Ventures. Serena, speaking of other great athletes, Tom Brady unretiring. What's your take on that? <laughs> um... I think everyone is happy about it, or most people were. I know I was. So it was definitely mixed feelings about him retiring and then kind of felt pretty good about the unretirement. I was like, oh, that's exciting. So, Well, 
Like Tom Brady, you've accomplished seemingly everything possible on the court, and you've now started this second career and in investing, and you've got other business interests. How much longer are we going to see you playing tennis? And are you thinking about the R word more often? I, I mean, I think every tennis player thinks about the R word as soon as they hit five years. <laughs> um, because tennis is so intense. It's literally 11 months out of the year. Um, but I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm living for the day. I always tell people I'm not planning for tomorrow, only in business. And when it comes to tennis, I'm planning just for today. <laughs> All right. So what's the Serena slam for business? What does that look like? Um, I have never been asked that question and I've never thought about it. And I think that is such a good idea. Like what a good way. Cause I've have, I have a Serena slam in tennis. So what a good idea. I absolutely love that. I'm going to think of something and come back to you on that. I love that. You just challenged me. I love being challenged. She has Amazing. her eyes. Have We're going to have to check oh, in trouble. You. I got work to do today. You just gave me, I don't have to do it all afternoon. <laughs> um, Serena, you have on that note, you have broken so many barriers. You have proved so many people wrong who didn't believe in you or support you. So I have to ask you about what, what happened to Naomi Osaka at Indian Wells. What's your reaction to this, especially given your own experience? Um, yeah, I, uh, I thought that, you know, I thought that everyone is different. I always say this. I always say everyone is different. Um... It's sport. I know a lot of people in sport, whether it's football, I know in basketball, I mean, shooting a free throw with all the noise and all the angry words and the fans, it's uh, it's interesting, you know? So it's a part of sport, unfortunately, and you have to be able to, you know, keep going in those times because it's like, it's not gonna, unfortunately, people can be really mean and that's terrible. And I've been around when people have been really mean and um, you just kind of have to understand that that's their opinion and just they're, it's a free world and they're able to have that opinion. But you, I think that, you know, for my opinion, it's like, okay, I'm not gonna, have that meanness when you know it's like okay how do i do how do i do that and so unfortunately i hate that it's a part of sport but it's part of sport and it, it will probably always be a part of sport and so um but everyone's different Serena Williams and Allison Rappaport, Stillman there from Serena Ventures you can watch the full interview we had a lot more fun at bloomberg.com coming up Crypto and national security. We're going to speak with the co-founder of Chainalysis, also the chief security officer, Jonathan Levine, about their new tool to monitor Russian sanctions and how they picture the role of crypto in national security going forward. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice 
or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Time now for our crypto report. This now week four of the war on Ukraine. And it's been a wild ride, both for financial markets and cryptocurrency. I want to bring in our next guest to talk about uh, this and more. Chainalysis co-founder and chief security officer, Jonathan Levine. Jonathan, Chainalysis is actually releasing a new tool that would help users identify whether, as I understand it, the people they're interacting with are sanctioned entities. Can you explain a little bit how this works? Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me. So essentially what we've seen in sanctions in the U.S. Uh, come out you know, recently and over the past few years as it, as it comes back to cryptocurrencies is that OFAC, uh, the regulator that oversees all of sanctions, actually lists addresses from cryptocurrency blockchains like listed on the screen. Uh, and that actually helps people understand whether they're interacting with people that are sanctioned individuals that they're prohibited from interacting with. And so you know, what we have released out there is an ability for anyone in the world free of charge to actually screen transactions that they're processing uh, against that API or against our smart contract Oracle to see whether they are hitting up against one of those listed addresses uh, by OFAC. Now, I'm wondering what you think, Jonathan, of the role of intermediaries here, exchanges, and the necessity to work with lawmakers and regulators. Do you think that there's more of a role that they need to play in order to make sure that the rules are being followed? Yeah, I think that, well, the industry has been preparing for this moment for a really long time, and you've had, you know, exchanges and financial institutions really, you know, as they step into the space and mature all of their risk and compliance programs, really go into business as usual. They know what the scenarios are. They know what they needed to do, and they've been sort of, you know, adapting to all of the latest uh, actions by OFAC and, and regulators around the world that have you know, taken steps to broaden sanctions. So, you know, I think from that standpoint, it's, it's sort of business as usual, albeit a little bit busier than usual in, in a lot of the sanctions teams in those financial institutions. Right. So, Jonathan, how much evidence are you seeing of Russians potentially using cryptocurrency to circumvent these rules? So, currently, we are tracking very closely the macro environment, right? We're, we're looking at all of the entry points and exit points from the Russian economy into cryptocurrencies and tracking sort of changes in liquidity, changes in volumes, different patterns of transactions to really understand, you know, has there been a systemic change in the way in which uh, people are using cryptocurrency in Russia and, and potentially evading sanctions? And, and, you know, so far, you know, we're not seeing sort of the, you know, systemic level of uh, cryptocurrency being used to evade sanctions that you know, people were worried about sort of at the beginning of this. How do you think about the role of cyber attacks in this war more largely? Is there evidence that this can become a bigger issue here? And what's the role here of folks in the crypto community who are also thinking about this at scale? 
Yeah, I think it's a great uh, question because really what we've seen in this war in general is that, you know, cyber is a uh, domain as part of this warfare. Um, you're seeing sort of increased cyber attacks on Ukrainian internet infrastructure. And, and we've seen sort of activity to do with Conti ransomware really, you know, increase as, you know, there have been some leaks and, and some reestablishment of, you know, Conti as sort of the dominant ransomware family out there. And so really it's incumbent on, you know, everyone in the industry to work really closely with government and, you know, share information about the attacks that are happening so that there can be sort of indicators and shared intelligence across geographies and across business. Um, so I think that there's, you know, a lot more partnership to be done and you're seeing a lot of the development of these task forces and a reprioritization of that in the U.S. You believe the war in Ukraine is a key inflection point for the crypto industry. How do you see this playing out? I think that one thing it's done is it's really surfaced that you know cryptocurrency can be used for humanitarian purposes. You know, with a distinct example here of the speed by which you know money was able to go from donors in all all these different countries around the world into the hands of the Ukrainian government, and then for them to purchase military equipment and emergency food supplies to be able to actually finance some of the defense of their country. You know, that is a really sort of tangible example that you know, is now you know, in the minds of a lot of people around the world. You know, the other thing here is that you know, it is actually possible to have you know, sanctions compliance for uh, cryptocurrency businesses around the world. And so you know, I think the combination of you know, the legitimacy and the utility of cryptocurrency coming like to the forefront, as well as sort of this increased focus and scrutiny on the regulatory piece, you know, is going to breed sort of uh, an inflection point in how regulated cryptocurrency businesses are able to, to function in, okay. in Western economies. All right. Chainalysis co-founder, chief security officer, Jonathan Levine, along with our Shanali Basik. Thank you. We don't think of it as a race at Blue Origin. Um, we are in this for the long term. And by long term, I don't mean five years. I don't mean 10 years. The vision of Blue Origin is generation spanning. I will not see it happen in my lifetime, my, maybe not even in my children's lifetime. That is how long the, the horizon of Blue Origin's vision is. And I'm very excited to be part of these, this early step, but it will keep on going. Chief architect of Blue Origin's suborbital rocket there, Gary Lai, back in July when Jeff Bezos made history on the company's first manned rocket to space. Now, Lai will follow in Bezos's footsteps and join Blue Origin's flight on March 29th. He'll be taking the place of Saturday Night Live star Pete Davidson, who dropped out of the flight when the company announced the dates had been changed. No additional reason given. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Join us tomorrow. We'll be joined by Bradley Tusk of Tusk Ventures. He'll talk about crypto investing and who will run the metaverse. That's tomorrow on Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg.